Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision? We will always have enough cash yeah. around. Strictly business. Hello, finance leaders, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and it's my job to interview wonderful finance leaders from all around the world. Today, I'm speaking with Asif Ahmed, founder of Acclivity Advisors. Acclivity specializes in accountancy and advisory services for early stage technology companies. Asif is also the author of the best-selling book, The Finance Playbook for Entrepreneurs which helps readers build a solid finance department for their high-growth businesses without the trial and error. Asif is an advisor to both HMRC and Her Majesty's Treasury and the co-founder of the brand-new content platform, The Finance Department. You can sign up for free at thefinancedepartment.co. We spoke about the need for better finance resources for entrepreneurs and why tax rules are still so complicated, despite the best intentions of those who write them. Today's episode is brought to you by Spendesk, the all-in-one spending solution that puts finance teams in control with 100% visibility into company spend. And by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.com and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.com with any questions or feedback. Asif Ahmed, welcome to CFO Yeah. Hi, Patrick. Hi, nice to be here. We're very, very happy to have you. And uh, as is customary, I, I'd love you to just introduce yourself to our CFO Connect audience. Sure. Well, no, thank you for having me. Um, so, yeah, as you say, my name is Asif. Um, I am a chartered accountant. I run a, a firm called Acclivity Advisors. Um, I started my career in PwC um, and you know did my chartered accountancy from there. But for the last 10 or 12 years, I've focused specifically on working with entrepreneurs and the early stage technology community uh and and yeah that's what we've grown acclivity to become an advisor in have you i take it you've always been a finance person yeah 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 unfortunately no i don't have a a big pivot from uh, something more exciting but no i've always been involved in finance but if you weren't if you had to be doing something else at the moment what do you think you'd be doing yeah so i always wrestle with this question and i think that i i, I and i try as much as possible to not deny uh what my true passion always was and that was to do something actually in music, um, which which many people probably won't know um, or have heard me say before. But yeah, the, the passion was always to actually do something on the business side, but uh, in the music industry. Mm. Interesting. Uh, I'd love to know yeah. a bit more about Acclivity. Um, maybe take us a bit deeper into the sort of work that you do. Sure. So um, so we, uh, as I mentioned, we're, so we're a specialist accountancy and advisory firm working on the sort of early stage uh, entrepreneurial and venture capital-backed technology sector uh, for the most part. And we focus specifically on working on companies that are sort of of traversing that seed stage to series B stage of growth. Um, And specifically, we do that because, uh, I mean, A, our experience is is best best utilized in that area, but also we like to work with entrepreneurs when they are uh, super early uh, and trying to establish processes, trying to establish how to run an operator business, um, and uh, and yeah, and so we help them with all of their compliance. We help them with a lot of the advisory work that comes with um, running a startup at that stage. So whether that's uh, taking a deep dive into things like fundraising, um, you know, whether that's through SCIS or EIS or setting up an option scheme or doing research and development tax credits, 
all of those things we we will help uh, an early stage founder with uh, until they get to a point where actually we help them try and take a lot of those things back in house because they're now of a certain size where good governance would suggest that they shouldn't be outsourcing some of those things. Mm, that was going to be my first question. So you're typically working with companies that I guess don't have a clear finance function. Perhaps maybe they mm. have an office manager or someone who's handling the the payroll, etc. But they don't have a, a CFO, yeah. certainly. And you're getting them yeah. set up for that that CFO or head of finance or finance director or whatever. Correct. Yeah. And so so the, so the idea is that we we sort of describe our product as a bit of a holding pattern. Um, to say that you know, let's let's try and sandbox all of the processes that are going to ultimately become your own finance department, and so whether that's through payment runs or um, setting up invoicing or bookkeeping or you know payroll, as you mentioned, mm. a lot of those things are done with the view that we're only going to do this until it makes you know financial and commercial success uh, uh, you know sense to do this yourself in house. Um, and and typically we've we found more often than not that it's when companies get to sort of Series B side um, and that level of funding that that uh, they they tend to have raised enough money to actually build out a proper finance department. What are the the kind of biggest challenges that you're finding? I mean, obviously you you listed a whole range of things, but so maybe let's focus more on are there current challenges that businesses of that nature are going through at the moment that maybe they weren't going through so often five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's the, like there there is a whole range of these things, and and I, and I don't know about a comparison against five years ago, but certainly in the last twelve to twenty four months, the landscape has changed quite significantly. Um, I mean, as is quite popularly discussed, there is quite a lot of funding available right now for for good ideas and for for entrepreneurs that are willing to uh, take big bets, but. But as you know, as the sort of global economy contracts, we get the feeling that 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 sort of thing will begin to become a little bit tougher. Um, and you know, some of the moonshots that we've you know uh, that we've experienced in the past, where people are sort of less concerned with fundamentals, but more concerned with trying to build out a hypothesis. I think that the the, fun, the fundamental fundraising um, attitude and aptitude for that sort of thing is going to begin to dry up. Um, and so, so suddenly, people are having to wrestle with the idea of focusing more on fundamentals uh, for the first time, which you know, which is no no bad thing, but it's certainly something that people may have fallen out of practice with over the last few years because the uh, so much of the venture community was focused on you know taking taking big moonshots and building uh, impact and reach, where whereas now I think things like profitability and unit economics are going to become a lot more important. Do you think that fundraising is just gone or is is the idea that it's going to move away from um the tech sector and, and into other sectors yeah no I don't, I don't think it's gone um and and frankly it you know it was always there um i think it's just a case of what the thesis will be that supports a good fundraising story uh, that has probably evolved um you know once upon a time funding was a scarce commodity and it was only reserved for companies that were able to display some of these fundamentals and a proper growth story. I think you know over the course of the last few years, um, you know we were sort of in a period of relative prosperity where actually there was so much funding available that some of those fundamental uh, traits, shall we say, fell fell by the wayside to some extent. Where where a lot of investors were happy to support businesses that were taking big uh, and following big audacious goals. Um, but yeah, so I don't think it's going anywhere. I just think that the, the criteria is going to become stricter. Mm. And and what is it about that Series B stage that makes it 
that makes that almost the cutoff point. I know you wouldn't describe it as a cutoff point, but that makes it fundamentally yeah. different. A, a company fundamentally changes pre and post Series B. Yeah. So, so it's 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 been designed this way on a thesis of what the individual funding rounds mean. Now, that's not always going to be the same, uh, but our our thesis on Series B is that you are now a company that is at the stage where you have established your product market fit. You you probably have um, some significant customers, clients that you're working with. Um, and actually now more than ever, it, the business is going to be a function of its own efficiencies. Um, whereas before the company was kind of a function of its ability to establish product market fit. And, and you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, success or otherwise was based on the individual efforts of the management team or the CEO or, um, and so, so you were sort of breaking through brick walls as opposed to relying on an operational infrastructure that, that fuels the business. And so the thesis is if series B is when you're raising your first major, major, say institutional round of funding. And now, like I said, that will change whether that, whether you consider that to be series A or series B, but in the old world of series B, um, you know, that's at a point where more than ever the company is, uh, looking to rely on its own efficiencies and infrastructure to be a successful business, which is when you probably will fall short if you haven't instilled some of these uh, practices in-house. You've also written a book, The Finance Playbook for Entrepreneurs, yeah. and I imagine you take that playbook and apply it to to your, your clients. Can you tell us a bit about the book? Yeah, sure. So, so that, that book was written over lockdown. It was, it was my sort of lockdown project through COVID. Um, I thought it was, you know, probably a better use of my time than sort of scanning the whole of Netflix. Um, but, but the idea behind writing the book was, you know, because we work on the early stage, we get to see entrepreneurs from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and, you know, they come from uh, employment or not employment straight out of university. Some come straight out of college. Um, some people have worked their entire career in employment and then want to start their own business uh, in the sort of latter part of their career. But what, what was becoming abundantly clear is that there was no uniform uh, or accepted way for people to go, come about the knowledge of how to start and run a business efficiently. Um, you know, even from the basic decision of what kind of entity should I be setting up? Should I be setting up a partnership or a limited company? You know, these are all things that I think it be had just become accepted practice that these were these are things that you are going to pay for in terms of advice. Uh, from a professional advisor. So this is these are just things that either a lawyer will teach you or an accountant will teach you. Uh, but but there's no real resource to actually go and learn these things yourself if you wanted to. Mm. Um, and so the, the, the thesis behind the book was that we really wanted to level the starting line, uh, or I certainly wanted to really level the starting line for, for entrepreneurs of all backgrounds to say, look, you know, here is a book which is probably the length of a long haul flight um, and uh, you can get on the plane having not known very much about anything to do with finance and running a business. And you can walk off that pl plane with sort of 10 or 11 immediate things that you can implement and get your head around um, in an easy to digest way um, so that you're sort of starting from 20% into the learning process as opposed to, you know, negative 5%. Mm. Are there specific aspects of building a business as an entrepreneur that you think are really not second nature, that really need to be talked through for entrepreneurs. I, in the example that you gave or the, the kind of illustration that you gave was of people who have obviously worked other jobs before, so they're familiar with a lot of things yeah. that, that have to go on. 
Was there anything in the book or in putting together the playbook that you really thought, oh, you know what? I bet nobody's thought of this or the average person doesn't think of this. Yeah, and it, it and just depends. As you say, yeah, there, there are definitely going to be instances where um, there are entrepreneurs that are familiar with the concepts, but they may not be familiar with the execution. But then similarly, there are situations and increasingly so now where some of our clients are coming straight out of college, you know, that they're choosing mm -hmm. to not go to university and, and wanting to set up their own business. And so they actually have no exposure at all to any of these kind of concepts. Um, and I think it... I think an entrepreneur will resonate with a different chapter in the book, depending on how they are wired. Um, and so, you know, there are certain lessons and tips in the book, which, you know, for example, um, they hold the the CEO to account to say, you know, your the, the efficiency of your business will only be a function of how willing you are to adhere to the processes that are implemented, um, you know, at the top. So whether that's expense management or whether that's, uh, you know, keeping your receipts and something, you know, we, I, what, what I try and do in the book is amplify and magnify some of the, the sort of day-to-day -day mundane tasks into how they are manifest as a reflection of the uh, the, the management's ability to, to, to really run an, a, a large organization. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those are some of the things that I think some of the more um, shall we say, entrepreneurial entrepreneurs, the ones who sort of focus on the actual, uh, you know, trying to shout from the rooftops about what it is that they do to say, look, you need to have just as much an appreciation for some of these uh, processes and, and, and topics. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult for you to get other people to buy into them. Uh, and now to go back to Acclivity, or and it may also tie into the book directly, I'm really interested in talking about technology and your role in implementing technology for um companies how much of a role yeah. do you have in, in doing that yeah so so a lot of the time um again a, a, a privilege of sort of working with the early stage is that sometimes uh clients are coming to us completely with a blank sheet of paper to say you know we're happy for you to design what our uh, technology stack looks like from a uh, accounting and finance perspective um and you know we more often than not, we'll, we'll ask clients to start with using a package like Xero or, you know, a platform like Xero or QuickBooks or, you know, whichever one they may prefer. Um, and then we will introduce them to a suite of sort of add-on software that we believe is useful for them based on what kind of business they are and what kind of reporting requirements they might have. And so a lot of the time, as, our, as I mentioned, our clients are backed by investors and sometimes investors will request that they need certain management reports prepared for them on a monthly quarterly basis and so we will set you know set the client up with adequate software to be able to assist them with that but then it could be something something more complex like inventory management um and then we need to go about uh finding the right tool for the client for that sp specific situation i mean what's great for us is that because we're not wedded to any particular software we can go about taking you know undertaking a proper research exercise to see which software works best for this particular client um and uh, and yeah, and more often than not, we will be assisting with um, you know whether it's payment software or inventory management or expense management software, um, but typically ones that you know interact directly with either Zero or whichever bookkeeping platform that we've implemented for them. If you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one -on -one member matching program. 
CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us. I'm interested in whether or not you think that there is a, or whether or not there is a level of obsolescence that essentially is built into some of these tools, or not built in, but to what extent do you need to think about future scale when you're implementing these tools versus just choosing the best tool for right now? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great question. And I think that's that's also something that I address in the book because, um, you know, a lot of the times that we see clients scale very quickly, that becomes a very urgent question mm-hmm. um, because, you know, these, these tools are not made for everybody. Um, and I think there's a bit of a shortcoming in the advisor community to, to bring that to light um, because the assumption is that we probably need to keep promoting platforms and software that we know how to mm. use um, as opposed to assuming that there may come a time where it becomes inappropriate for a client. So, so you know, in certain situations, we've had a client where we've had to tell them that I'm afraid even for what you're doing right now, zero is not suitable for you, you know, because you need uh, an intricate level of customization uh, or whatever the case may be. Um, and yeah, and so so certainly what we are trying to do more and more of is create content around what comes after um, zero and what comes after some of the off-the-shelf packages that you see um, to say that, look, whilst we are not experts in necessarily implementing those, we're certainly experts in recognizing when they become a necessity. Um, and so, so yeah, no, to your point, that that's definitely something that I think needs to be discussed more. It's possibly one of the hottest topics in the CFO Connect um, community around when is the right time for an ERP. And it seems like the answer yeah. is always absolutely not until you need it, but then the moment you need it, you wish you had it six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, we, I'm sure we'll come on to talking about um, some of the content work that we're doing right now, but um, so we are... Um, we are sort of taking the lead on creating content around this nature, around this topic. Um, and specifically because, like I said, we've had clients who from an optical standpoint should be very, uh, should be squarely in the zero category. But actually if you are truly um, appreciative of the business model that they operate or the needs that they're going to have, you probably would never have started them on zero in the first place. Um, and so in situations like that, I think it's, it's incumbent upon us, at least in like, for example, the early stage community to know what sits on the other mm-hmm. side um, from an ERP standpoint, because there's a lot of ERP software out there, I think, um, that isn't as intimidating as, as you know, as, as we're led to believe. Um, and so, you know, to, to implement those earlier, as you say, is sometimes a lot sort of a, much more of a blessing than waiting until it's critical. Well, tell us more about the the content, the the thought leadership that you're putting out. Um, what do we need to know? Yeah, sure. So, so as an extension to the book, um, the book was obviously a, a establishing of a thesis to say, you know, there's no consistent knowledge around the topics that surround this 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 area of the economy, and so we want to be the ones to bring the best people. Um, uh, well, certainly in the book, I wanted to be put out our best advice mm-hmm. um, into into the book. But then the extension of that was like, okay, well, we work with a network of so many other uh, operators and advisors in this space, be it lawyers or advisors of other nature, tax advisors. Um, So why don't we curate all of the best uh, content on topics that we know are 
required by our CFO community. So all the CFOs that we work with across our portfolio, um, you know, some of them ask the same questions. Um, and it just it's it just always struck me as something that was slightly structurally incorrect that that there wasn't a sole place that they could go to learn these things. You know, if you happen if you happen to know another CFO that had uh, been through the same journey, then they might be able to give you their version, but then that would only be their version. So how would you corroborate that against what it is that you need? Um, so we created a platform called the Finance Department, um, and it, you can go to it at thefinancedepartment.co or tfd.community. Um, and essentially there, what we are doing is, is, is every day, every week, uploading new, more and more content from experts that we have either worked with or have a relationship with. And our sole brief to them is put together some content for us on something that is wholly ungoogleable. Mm. Um, so someone can't, you know, the question that you're answering that someone couldn't have just Googled. So, you know, whereas you might see that the title sounds like a Google search result, if you actually watch the video, it's much more like someone teaching you something on a sort of nuanced level that you couldn't have picked up from a textbook or from Google. Um, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a platform where that will become the accepted place for people to go and at least have an entry level knowledge for some of these topics, because what we want to do is take the teaching away from the advisor community. Um, Cause I think that is the actual nub of what is, what has been wrong with this industry is that by default, the advisor community has been looked at as a sort of teacher as well as a, as well as an advisor. Um, and, and accountants and lawyers were never trained to be good teachers. Um, you know, that's certainly not part of the syllabus, certainly in the chartered accountancy exams I did. There was no section to say, you know, how do you teach this to someone that is not a finance professional? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, whether you are a non-finance person who happens to be working in the finance department because you're a two-person company, or if you're someone that's you know very senior from the finance world but just happens to be in your first role in a startup um hopefully our content will allow you to get to the point where you don't feel obliged to spend money to just learn um some of the basic topics whether it's option schemes or fundraising or r d uh, and then as a as a further extension to that what we're trying to do is trying to create a community where people can ask questions of each other so um There'll be a community section over there where you might go on there and say, I, you know, I've just joined as the head of finance for a, uh, I don't know, a ride sharing app. And I'm confused as to what the VAT rate should be for this particular type of transaction. And hopefully another finance person from another ride sharing app might say, you know, whenever we came across this situation, this was the VAT rate we use. And so it's much more crowdsourced. It's much more peer to peer. And the idea is that hopefully you will come with an answer that the crowd will validate was the right mm -hmm. answer, as opposed to just going to one advisor who may or may not have ever worked with a ride sharing company in the past. That's the that's the end goal, obviously. How I mean, how much mm. if I go there right now, how much content can I expect to find? Yeah, no, there's there's a fair amount of content on there mm -hmm. actually already. Um, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but um, it will certainly keep you busy for a while, um, and and there's much more that is 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 going online every day um, right now. We're you know we're we're built, finishing off the build of some of the other technical pieces, which will come over the course of the next few weeks. Actually, so we're not even that far away. Uh, but from a content standpoint, it's an everyday thing. So every day or every week, certainly there are new bits of content going up. 
wonderful. I think it's a great initiative. Um, yeah, so I'm sure I'm sure many members of the CFO Connect community will head over there and check that out. I'd like to yeah, I'd so. like to take a little detour now into the world of tax because you are a tax mm -hmm. advisor. Um, well, it, mm -hmm. maybe perhaps why don't you tell us about your work? <laughs> I don't want to say the wrong thing, <laughs> yes. and I almost certainly will. So yeah. How how would you describe your work? No, no, that's fine. So, so yeah, I mean, obviously, as part of my job, there, um, you know, we, we, there's certainly elements of tax that I advise on, and there are certain things that I am uh, more of a specialist on than others. So, for specifically, things like share option schemes and EIS and SCIS um, are things that I, uh, I tend to do more complex work in. But uh, I think what you're referring to is sort of the work that I do with Indeed. government, which is, um, so I, I, I'm a, an advisor, and that for the Office of Tax Simplification. Um, as well as on an HMRC board as well. Uh, and I think that those two roles really came as a result of being uh, an advisor to startups uh, that also happens to run his own business. And so I can give the perspective of an entrepreneur and I can give the perspective of entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. <laughs> if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, so so, so I've been doing that for a little while now. And um, and it's a real privilege. You know, it's uh, you get... Uh, front row access to how government is thinking about tax, you know, some of the things that they are sensitive to, um, some of the vulnerabilities that they have, which is great. And, and you know, the real uh, access that I have is being able to relay to government some of the issues that I see playing out, certainly in my uh, ecosystem. Mm. Uh, and, and I've done that. And so, you know, and it's really sort of gratifying to see some of that stuff then find its way to the finance bill and you know other other things that get announced uh, you know by the chancellor or otherwise why is tax so complicated <laughs> uh I, that's a good question i think um you know i suppose the question is whether it should be mm. or not um I, it, it's i think you know and I, I say this with the utmost um humility you know because it's not easy to design a tax system um is that just the velocity of change in the economy over the last 30 years is probably the equivalent of the velocity of change over the last 150 years um, or the prior the prior 150 years. And so it's hard for the uh, the tax system theoretically to keep up with the way that things, the way that people are going about doing their business and how people go about earning their money um, because there is a very real... Uh, set of decisions and 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 you know implementations that you need to make to to understand whether what you're suggesting can actually be enforced or not and and so i think that what's ended up happening is that we've ended up with a evolving tax system which was designed for a very different type of economy um and is now trying to modernize itself to keep up with uh, the way that people are going about their business now but inevitably in the in the effort of doing so is outdating itself by virtue of not doing it quickly enough. <laughs> um, and so 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 it's a, I think that the tax system was never really designed to as quickly evolve as it and keep evolving as it's needing to mm. now. Um, which is why it's it's currently in the sort of uh sort of Frankenstein state right now, which is some some, some legacy policy with uh, some lofty ambitions and some implementation and some, you know not so great implementation do you think everybody this is a very loose question but do the right people have the right interests in mind when it comes to tax for there to be positive change i think so mm. i think so i've no i've never seen anything other than 
the right and positive attitudes uh, from all of my interactions uh, on the various uh, committees that I sit on. Everybody is uh, is very committed to making the tax system as welcoming and as easy to understand as possible. And 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 everybody is humble to the problems as well. You know, it's not. I, I never. I have never come across any aversion uh, to the to the feedback that we've been giving. Uh, to say, well, actually, no, it's perfectly fine. It's it's a you mm. problem, not a us problem. Um, it's it, there is always um, sufficient scope for feedback, and 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 everybody will genuinely listen to things that you have to say. I think, I think sometimes, you know, certainly, I, I'll speak for myself. Is sometimes from the perspective of someone that's working with entrepreneurs, we often feel like because we have the loudest voice, the tax system therefore has to. Uh, evolve to accommodate us, mm. uh, whereas actually the country is much bigger than just the just the the, the tech community. Um, and so, you know, whereas someone from the tech community may not be thinking, how does this affect, you know, a middle aged person living up north who's working in a completely different industry to technology? Um, that is something HMRC does have to think about, you know. And so sometimes it is. Um, it is a function of not recognizing that HMRC is dealing with a national tax policy, whereas we are trying to solve for uh, a policy that affects just our ecosystem. Mm. And then, and then it becomes a question of priorities, right? So, you know, uh, the, the the technology world and the entrepreneurial community will say that they are leading the charge in in moving the country forward, um, and therefore there should be some prioritization for. Uh, you know, for tax policy and making sure that this country is as welcoming and as competitive as possible, which is true to some extent. But again, that balance is something that really only HMRC is having to worry about, whereas it's quite easy to keep making suggestions. Um, they have to balance it with a sort of national agenda, which is often a tough, tough balance to strike. Think you have company cash under control? You may have a process to pay people back, but company spending is so much more than expense claims. Spendesk gives you one system to replace your old-fashioned company cards, track online payments easily, and process supplier invoices faster than ever. Whether you're a growing startup or you've been doing this for decades, it's never too late to upgrade. Graduate from basic expenses to spend management today. Try Spendesk. Is, is tax a, when you're working uh, with early stage startups, um, grow, high growth companies, in, at least in goals, I'm sure their goals are to grow as fast as possible. Is tax a yes, yeah. a concern in general? Is it something that just has to be done, but it's relatively formulaic? Or is it really something that there is a strategic approach to? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that um, certainly in the early stage, um, it's maybe not as much of a concern as uh, as later as companies that are slightly more mature, and there's a good reason for that. Is often because companies are not making a profit, and so um, and so there's very little tax exposure in the first instance. I mean, certainly there are sensitivities to payroll taxes and the taxes associated with issuing things like share options, and you know all of the sort of entry level concerns that you may uh, assume an early stage business has. But from the perspective of actually sitting down and, and designing a tax agenda, I think that doesn't come until much later. It, obviously, there are unique circumstances where companies become very profitable very quickly, and suddenly, um, you know that that does become a concern. 
Um, but 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 no, as a sort of general answer, the early stage community is not as concerned or as uh, organized, shall I say, when it comes to designing tax policy and, and you know, for understandable reasons. Yeah. And does that change at all when companies start looking at international expansion? Yes. Yeah. Um, and particularly, you know, since Brexit and, um, you know, with with just, we found a lot of companies were having to grapple with changes to a tax system, whereas they weren't fully conversant with the tax system in the first place. And so they were sort of learning, okay, what was the tax system? How has it now mm. changed um, as a result of Brexit? Um, and actually, you know, there wasn't a lot of great information out there to help entrepreneurs navigate that time. And actually, there wasn't a whole lot of great execution either, um, even if people did did understand it theoretically. Um, and so, yes, cert- certainly from the standpoint of uh, growing overseas or, or trading overseas, mm. Um, that that does accelerate a company's need to understand uh, tax a little better. Um, but thankfully, nowadays, there are so many great tools out there that uh, that can help you navigate these things. I think maybe even pre-COVID, there weren't as many tools to, for example, employ an overseas team. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's loads of those kinds of uh, tools out there now, which will teach you about local tax laws um and help you operate those things which is you know which is which is generally a good thing well i'd love to turn now to our quick fire questions um, there are four of them sure. uh, with which we like to finish our interviews so the first question is what is one finance tool you couldn't live without and please don't say excel <laughs> um no i yeah no I, yeah i probably i probably could live without excel just just to know the uh the trauma i'm alleviating myself of but but i i would say probably zero um and the reason I say that is because Zero allows a firm like ours and an advisor like myself to, to sort of, to to work with as many companies as mm. we do. Um, I think that's genuinely a unique feature of um, of Zero, uh, and I'm certainly other cloud bookkeeping platforms as well. But but that's the Zero is the one that we tend to use. Um, so yeah, I'd say Zero. Mm. It's certainly built well to scale for for firms. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Correct. If there was one part of your day-to-day you could outsource completely and forget about, what would it be? Uh, I'd say probably personal accounting. Oh, yeah. um, I think that that's, uh, you know, this is something we're thinking about in terms of implementing for entrepreneurs, but it's um, personal accounting, I think, is always something that is just a bit of a non-discussed topic mm-hmm. um, that ultimately, you know, if you have... Um, various different things going on that is difficult to make sure that your own personal accounting is just as organized as your startup's accounting. Um, so I think that, yeah, if I could find a way of reliably outsourcing, that, I probably would. As a uh, non-finance native myself, that is incredibly refreshing to hear because I just imagine that you have it all <laughs> completely solved. No, 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 no. You just, you take the leap of faith that w- when it comes to crunch time, you'll be able to do it quickly. <laughs> What is the best advice you've ever received? Um, I'd say as a as a sort of personal and professional piece of advice um, is, well, there's two. Probably what gets measured gets managed. Mm. Um, that that's tends, t- tends to hold people in good stead to say, you know, if you're measuring something, you can tend to manage it. Um, and, you know, whether that's from a business standpoint or from a personal standpoint, um, and similarly, then, um, you know, as an advisor, I find that 
you know, is particularly working with early stage businesses, but actually also with, this is the one thing that I think in our world we can scale is, um, is to always lead with empathy. Mm. Um, so I think that the, uh, the empathy side of things is a slightly underutilized element within the professional advisor community. Uh, and I think that touch wood, hopefully, um, is something that has held us in good stead is that we don't tend to work with hundreds and hundreds of clients. And the reason for that is because I don't want us as a firm to ever dilute the empathy we can extend to a founder or to a, to an entrepreneurial team. Um, so yeah, so, so those would be two that traverse both personal and professional. That's a really interesting perspective. It's, uh, we talk to a lot of in-house CFOs as well as consultants, and, and it's something that a lot of uh, a lot of them are dealing with at the moment is uh, exactly as you say, empathy, but obviously for teams, for their, their direct finance team and the wider company, and how can you show more empathy and help others grow? Um, it's really interesting yeah. to hear it from the perspective of essentially an outsourced um, CFO uh, yeah. and, and still feeling that empathy towards the company, I guess, more rather than specific individuals. Yeah, no, I think it's it's again another feature of early stage uh, companies is that you know these entrepreneurs typically are at their most vulnerable mm. because they will have either just left a, a very lucrative job or career, and you know they're trying to make something of themselves or something of an idea that they have or a burning passion or desire that they have to see something exist in this world. Um, you know, particularly with the vacuum of knowledge that, you know, I'm trying to fill through the book or we're trying to fill through the finance department to then sort of have this whole sector of your entrepreneurial journey that you're really not sure how to learn about. And that, and that you know, there are so many cracks that you can fall through by getting things wrong. I think our job really is to make sure that we are empathetic to that vulnerability and that fear and to say that, look, you know, we will look after xyz for you or we will give you access to the tools to make sure that you're not you're not as intimidated by those topics and i think that you know that ultimately is something that i think resonates with with our portfolio and our community generally is that is that also a reason why you enjoy working with early stage startups more because you're actually in touch with someone's yeah dreams or, or a group of people's dream yeah and I, and I never underestimate that you know because um you know whether it's uh, their dream and something that they you know really want to see make happen or because of just how much it means to that person mm. you know it's it's very different to working with a cfo who is a career cfo and is not really invested in the mission of the business because that's their job mm -hmm. you know um for for a lot of our clients they this is really everything for them and that it's a very different dynamic um which which i much you know i much more enjoy than than the alternative and finally, which other finance directors do you talk to or learn from regularly? Yeah, I mean, loads. Um, so all of the CFOs of our portfolio, uh, we speak to fairly regularly. Um, you know, all companies that, you know, are not able to disclose who they are, but they're, but they're all wonderful people and very, um, you know, very switched on. And, and we, we learn just as much from them as, as, as they hopefully do from us. Um, I, again, very fortunate to, to have access to um, senior finance people and economists and things in the government. So it's uh, it's always interesting to speak to them to understand a, a policy narrative, which often is is not discussed uh, in that granularity with people on the ground like us. And so you know I, I do get that access. And you know just one example, uh, a few weeks ago HMRC released their guidance on cryptocurrency, for example. And um, 
you know, there was a little bit of confusion amongst uh, people as to what it really meant and, you know, how, how, how they're supposed to understand this. And, you know, I found myself within a few days speaking to the person that wrote it, you know, and said, you know, he was talk talking to me about exactly what his thought process was and, and how he'd be happy to take any feedback if, if we heard it. And so, you know, that kind of access is really, is really gratifying as well. Uh, so, yeah, so between our portfolio CFOs and people in government and just generally people that we work with every day, it's, uh, it's an everyday privilege. Asif Ahmed, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you so much, Patrick. Good to have you. Speak soon. CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Join us for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for CFOs. Join the community and exchange ideas with CFOs from the most exciting companies in the world. Just visit cfoconnect.eu.